0: Our first discussion and the first lecture today will be delivered by Dr. Davy Smith. Davy is a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, one of my very valuable and valued colleagues at UCSD. He runs the CIFAR Translational Virology Core and is one of the co-directors of our Center for AIDS Research at UCSD. And Davey is an excellent uh, virologist and will be talking to us about when will it all be over and update related to HIV cure efforts. Davey.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Connie. Thanks, everyone, for being here this uh, morning. And thank goodness we're on the West Coast, and I'm not giving this lecture yet. 8 a.m., 9 a.m. on the East Coast, like usual. Here's my disclosure side. If you don't see one up here, but have a disclosure to give to me later, let me know um, after the talk, I'd be happy. So the learning objectives of this talk is going to be, um, I want to try to describe, or be able to uh, comprehensively explain the difference between a functional and a sterilizing cure effort and I want to be able to explain how to recognize current cure strategies that are going to be going on in clinical research, what have gone on and what's going to be planned for the future. And I want to describe a little bit about the ethical issues around HIV cure research. So the main parts of my talk are going to be about... um, What are we planning on doing? What are the rationale for doing it? But the first start is why do we actually do it? So thing one is that the HIV reservoir persists even during antiretroviral therapy. So here on the y-axis is circulating virus. And when someone gets infected, it goes to a really high level, and it sort of sets a set point later on. If you start antiretroviral therapy, that viral load, which is HIV RNA form, goes to undetectable levels. But when you stop HIV therapy, the virus comes back. And that's the problem one. Problem two is the other form of HIV, which is HIV DNA. And this is where it resides within infected T cells, or cells in general, and stays there, those target cells. And here is a study of HIV-infected individuals, and on the y-axis is HIV DNA, the DNA form that's inside the cells. We're gonna talk a lot about that in a second. And when they start on antiretroviral therapy, they start measuring the HIV DNA levels. And as you can see, that over time, up to 200 weeks after starting therapy, they stay really uh, stable. So those are the two big problems, right? So once you stop antiretroviral therapy, the virus comes back. The form that stays uh, infected in the cells is very stable even during antiretroviral therapy. So how do we actually cure it? Well, there's two different ways that we're thinking about HIV cure efforts. One is a sterilizing cure, and that's where we just eliminate HIV from everywhere that we can find it. The next one is a functional cure, and that's where the host immune system is able to control HIV infection without the help of antiretroviral therapy. So the first one that I wanna talk about is the Berlin patient. And here in blue, the blue guy in the middle, is our patient. And he has CCR5 wild type, and I'm gonna talk a lot about this in a second. But just know that it's a way that HIV gets into uh, cells to infect them. And he's HIV infected and develops leukemia. So to treat his leukemia, he gets two stem cell transplants. He also gets radiation and chemotherapy, really aggressively trying to treat this leukemia. But the stem cells that he was given, had a mutation called Delta Delta 32, which effectively knocked out CCR5. And when it did that, at the end of two stem cell transplants, lots of chemotherapy, lots of radiation, including graft-versus-host disease, he didn't have leukemia, and he didn't have HIV infection. And here in these graphs, this is the viral load, and the viral load went down during antiretroviral therapy, he had leukemia that relapsed, first stem cell transplant, another leukemia relapse, another stem cell transplant. But by the end, when he was no longer on therapy, the viral load was undetectable and remains undetectable to this day. His CD4 count's also rather low, bounced around very low, and then slowly has started to climb. So the next case that I'm sure lots of people have talked about or heard about is the Mississippi baby. and this is an, infant that was born to an HIV-infected mother and that at the very beginning the HIV-RNA, the viral load, was detectable when the baby was born. The baby was started on therapy and continued on therapy after birth, and the viral load went down to undetectable. The mom, bringing the baby in to the the pediatrician, says, wow, the viral load is still undetectable. Congratulations on keeping the baby on therapy and doing such a good job. And the mom goes, well, the baby hasn't been on therapy for a while. So what they saw was that the viral load was undetectable after antiretroviral therapy had been stopped for quite a while. Unfortunately, after three years, which is a long time, viral load did rebound in this baby to 16,000 copies. So in a similar vein, pun intended, this is the Visconti cohort. So the baby was started in antiretroviral therapy very early, right, soon after birth, but these are adults who started HIV therapy soon after they were infected. And then they stayed on antiretroviral therapy for a while, and then antiretroviral therapy was stopped. So here is the probability of loss of control, so rebound. And as you can see, within the first few months, first few weeks, the vast majority of individuals rebounded on their uh, virus after therapy was stopped. As clinicians, we see this all the time, right? But there were some individuals, you can see that this doesn't go all the way up to 100%, and it doesn't go up to 100 for quite a while, 66 months after um, stopping therapy. So there were some individuals that were able to control their virus off therapy um, for a while. Turns out to be around 15% of these individuals called post-treatment controllers. So this post-treatment controllers may not be rare, is up to 15% of this cohort, and we've seen them both in the ACTG treatment interruption studies of people who were treated both during acute infection and chronic infection. But we still don't know what proportion of patients would be post-treatment controllers, and what is special about those individuals that are able to control their virus even after they stop their antiretroviral therapy. So another study that's similar to the Berlin patient, it was the Boston patients, and this was two individuals who had lymphoma, not leukemia, who were given bone marrow transplants, and the Delta 32 mutations were different in the bone transplants in the patients. Um, basically, after they got their transplants, the HIV DNA levels, the RNA levels went down, and it was undetectable for a long period of time. However, once they stopped antiretroviral therapy, the viral loads went back up in both of these individuals. So it wasn't just that the bone marrow transplant um, was the reason that the Berlin patient was cured. (coughs) So our current effort, so that's the background. So we talked about why we do it, what are the problems. The second one are the the recent efforts, the Mississippi baby, the Berlin patient, the Visconti cohort. So what are we doing now? So the first one is, is there a way to eliminate latency? And one of the strategies that lots of people talk about are the kick and kill or the shock and kill. So I'm going to talk about that. Um, These are some of the agents in terms of kicking the virus out, um, histone deacetylase inhibitors or HDACs or TLR7 agonists. Killing, how do you find infected cells? Once you find them, can you? Uh, kill them. You can also enhance HIV specific immune responses through th- therapeutic vaccines to perhaps get a functional cure or maybe even use that as a killing strategies. There's also ways to maybe make HIV cells, a, target cells resistant to HIV. You might be able to add protective stuff to those cells or cut out needed stuff or maybe even just cut out um, HIV altogether using gene therapy. So we're going to talk about those today. So I'm an English major and undergrad, so everything is about metaphors to me. So here is a bunch of the T cells, and there's my little roses. And you can think of virus as HIV, as these little bees um, that go along and pollinate all the little cells that it can find to keep moving. If you use antiretroviral therapy, you basically stop the replication or the pollination. However, the problem is that some of the infected cells here will just go ahead and die. But some of the infected cells will reside, will hide um, HIV within them. And it's about one in a million T cells. So it's a really small needle in a very large haystack. So one of the strategies to figure out what cell is there that's infected is called this kicking strategy. And here are some of the agents that people are now talking about, the cystone deacetylase inhibitors, IL-7, vaccines, immune checkpoint inhibitors. We'll talk about some of those in a second. But once there's a kick, does that cell now uh, present itself as being infected? And once it does that, is there a way then to go in and kill that infected cell? So it's basically here to find the white iris amongst the sea of blue. So here's the kick and the kill. So we have our cells, one, is lately infected, we kick it with some strategy, and then once it's producing little bits of virus, or the immune system, cytotoxic T lymphocytes for the most part, come along, recognize that that cell's infected, and kills it. That's what its job is. And at the same time, we continue antiretroviral therapy to keep new cells from becoming infected um, during this strategy. So that's the strategy in a nutshell. So one of them that's been discussed a lot, and that uh, you've probably seen in the news in various strategies, is these things called HDAC inhibitors, or histone deacetylase inhibitors. And how it works is that we have a chromosome, our DNA, very long, has to be packed together, and it's packed together with these little histones, these little uh, pieces of protein that sort of wind up our DNA. And if HIV is part of that DNA, it gets wound up, and that's how it hides. But it has these little histone tails, that tells it whether to unwind or to wind back up. So if you use an HDAC inhibitor, it causes these histones to unwind. And when it unwinds, it allows that DNA to be read in terms of transcription to produce RNA, which if it is HIV, there's the HIV RNA. So that's the kick. It causes the DNA to be unwound, the DNA opens up. If that is HIV DNA, it's read that then becomes uh, present. So one of the more recent HDAC inhibitor um, studies was romadepsin, and here is a bunch of individuals. Each of these lines represents the donors. Here's the plasma viral load. Here's romadepsin. When they gave the HDAC inhibitors, you could see in the blood blips of HIV RNA. So there was a kick. These are people on therapy. Every time that they gave a little bit of romadepsin, they could see the virus in the bloodstream. But if you look at the other form of HIV, HIV DNA, Those levels stayed remarkably stable in all those individuals, even after multiple doses of romadepsin. So there was a kick, but really not much of an appreciable kill. So how do we go about killing this reservoir? Well, one of them um, is antibodies, and the reason I put this in is that I think they're becoming more hot at the moment. And basically, this is Antibodies, we all have antibodies, and HIV-specific antibodies have been developed um, in terms of monoclonal antibodies, and this was, um, the idea was that the HIV antibody would recognize the infected T cell, and then during that uh, recognition, either cytotoxic T lymphocytes or antibody-dependent cytotoxicity killing, et cetera, could make that cell more vulnerable to be killed. So when they use this triple cocktail of antibody, They did find that HIV DNA copies, over time, were decreased after they infused it in all the individuals that they tested. So there was some evidence of a good killing strategy with these antibodies. Another one is that maybe we can take these very cool antibodies and add something to it. And this is called a dual affinity retargeting molecule. And it's like cardiology. They did it so they could come up with a good acronym, which is DART, right? dual affinity retargeting. So they took an antibody and they engineered it to have another piece of it that brought in T cells. So this antibody would recognize the infected cell and then the other part would, rec- would bring in the T cell to increase the chances of them coming together to kill the infected T cell. So they did a study, here's four donors. The blue is no dart, red is a control, and the green is the, uh, active DART, and you could see a modest decrease in almost all the individuals that the HIV DNA levels, um, I'm sorry, the viral RNA levels would decrease after stimulation using the DART, but it it was a modest effect. So another thing that we can do is, let's just get the host immune response better, and if we do that, perhaps that would improve control of HIV infection without antiretroviral therapy. So here is a very interesting study done in macaques um, where they took uh, the macaque form of CMV, rhesus CMV, and made a vaccine out of it, but it's a live vaccine, so that when the vaccine went into macaques, it actually replicated, it grew. And then they engineered that vaccine to instead of having CMV proteins, it had SIV proteins. So like HIV, it had GAG, REV, and then Paul. So it expressed these proteins that, in a way, that hoped to increase the immune response of the macaque. So they took some of these macaques and they gave this vaccine twice, and then they infected them with a low-dose challenge of SIV all the macaques got infected. So it didn't prevent the SIV infection happening in the macaques, but over time, those viral loads went undetectable. And actually, if you extend it out, it were undetectable for a long time. And here's where they did very single copy assays and still couldn't find any SIV viruses in the the macaques. So what this did was it improved the immune response of these macaques so that they were able to control the infection even without therapy. So another uh, idea that's come across comes from cancer therapy about immune checkpoints. And these are basically um, ways that our immune system is either energized or exhausted. And it goes about through this process and recognition of a whole bunch of different proteins and markers on various cells, like antigen-presenting cells, or a tumor cell, and a T cell. So T cells are also supposed to go along and kill cancer cells, just like they are supposed to kill HIV-infected cells. So here, PD-1, CD4LA, uh, there's CD40, CD34, a whole bunch of CD's, right? But basically, these are immune markers and immune energizers for cells. So borrowing from the cancer uh, work, we're now thinking that perhaps some of these could be used to help improve the immune response for HIV-infected individuals. And the one I wanted to talk about is PD-1 access of immune checkpoint. And basically, PD-1 is a negative regulator on activated T cells. And it's upregulated when the cells are exhausted from killing um, virally-infected cells. And the thought is that if we're able to block this pathway, um, either at the PD-1 side or it's ligand, PD-1 ligand, then you could improve the CD8 function and it could go along and kill virally infected cells. So here we have an antigen presenting cell, it has PD-1. We have a T cell that's exhausted from working so much and it has a ligand. And when those two are together, this T cell's exhausted. And then you have a latently infected T cell down here. With PD-1, perhaps blockade, you can increase HIV expression, but really what you wanna do is energize this previously exhausted T-cell to be able to be a cytotoxic T-lymphocyte to go along and kill this um, infected T-cell, and thus hopefully decreasing the reservoir. So there are some studies. Dr. Erron presented some nice ones at CROI about PD-1, and its efficacy, but you'll see some of these immune checkpoint inhibitor studies coming along um, in the future, I think, whether or not it's PD-1 or not, um, still yet to be determined. Another thing we can do is gene therapy, in terms of cutting out HIV. So there's some gene editing enzymes out there. Um, there can be zinc fingers or talons, And the big popular one at the moment is CRISPR-Cas. I see it all the time on my Facebook feed about how CRISPR-Cas is able to cut out HIV. And basically, these are gene-editing molecules that recognize some sort of genetic code. And once it recognizes the genetic code, it cuts it out. So here's a study using zinc fingers. These are in a Petri dish of HIV-infected cells. And when they put in the zinc finger that recognizes a piece of HIV, it cuts it out. Here is the where they got the active zinc fingers and these are the negative controls and there's a modest effect. So the zinc fingers were able to see the HIV DNA and a little bit cut a little bit of it out compared to the negative control. The issue with this is there's a lot of DNA in our bodies with a lot of different sequences and people are worried about just going in there and trying to cut out pieces of DNA whether or not that might lead to cancer, if we had an oncogene, et cetera, et cetera. Also the cellular delivery, most of these occur within, outside the body, not within the body. So you could uh, limit the number of off-target effects, but also to get these editing molecules within where they need to be. And then resistance, there's a recent study showing that perhaps there's inherent, or maybe developing resistant to some of these editing compounds. Well, another way you can do it is just make cells resistant to HIV. So if you knew that there was something that HIV needed to infect a cell, maybe we just cut that out. So you can think about the Berlin patient. It was all about CCR5. And HIV uses two molecules, CD4 and another co-receptor here at CCR5 to get into the cell and integrate into the DNA. So perhaps if I'm able to cut out CCR5 through genetic mechanisms, or you could do it pharmacologically, that's what maraviroc does. Um, But if I'm able to make these cells always protected, then that might be another way to cure HIV. So here, we use zinc finger nucleases. We know exactly what the gene is supposed to be. It recognizes those genes in T cells. It then cuts out that gene, and that uh, takes out the CCR5 so that the virus doesn't get in. And they did a study Looking at that, we call it adoptive immunotherapy, and basically they took HIV-infected individuals who were on therapy, they took out their CD4-positive T cells and their CD8 uh, cells, their T cells, and they took the CD4s and they manipulated them to cut out the CCR5 in, in a Petri dish outside the body. And then once they manipulated that and cut out that CCR5, they gave those T-cells back to the person. And the thought was that those T-cells are now protected from HIV infection and shouldn't die. But just remember, that's a small amount of that person's T-cells versus all the other T-cells that are in that body. So here's what they did. So here's the total number of T-cells in the black line. Blue is the ones that are unmodified. And then red are the ones that we're hoping are still protected by taking out that CCR5. So then they take these individuals and they stop therapy. And what happens when you stop therapy? CD4 count goes down. And that's exactly what we saw in the blue cells. See, the blue cells, which were unmodified, went down during the treatment interruption, while the red cells, for the most part, stayed relatively protected. So, aha, proof of concept that perhaps we're able to protect some of the T-cells from becoming infected if we're able to chop off the CCR5 through gene therapy. Okay, now we have some um, audience response. So everybody get their little uh, um, clickers and see if everybody had enough coffee this morning. So which of these is like and if I didn't slip into a southern accent so that people can understand me. So which of these is likely an example of a functional cure? Is it the Berlin patient, the Mississippi baby, the Boston patients, the Visconti cohort? Like we've got a response. Okay, sorry, I'll stop touching that. <laughs> so um, the answer to that would have been I think it was the functional cure that I asked about, and that would be the Visconti cohort, right? So those are individuals who were started therapy early, and then we stopped therapy in them, and they were able to control their virus without therapy. Did they still have virus? Yes but they were, for some reason, which we don't know why, were still able to control their virus afterwards. The other groups, like the Berlin patient, we've tried, we think, or have done, eradicated replication-competent virus from everywhere, so there's not a rebound. And, but the caveat is that the T cells that are targeted are also probably protected because the stem cell transplant was able to um, protect them from becoming infected again. The Mississippi baby, represented perhaps a type of functional cure for some period of time, because that would be like a post-treatment control, and of course the Boston patients um, rebounded even though they were trying to be protected. I like the soundtrack, Carrie Butter. See if we can go to the next slide. Okay. Which of these is an example of a functional HIV cure strategy? Therapeutic vaccine, HDAC inhibitor therapy, PD-1 blockade, that's the immune checkpoint, or the CRISPR HIV DNA modification. So that's gene therapy using the CRISPR-Cas system, similar to the zinc finger. So, so any, I wouldn't say any of these, but other than HDAC inhibitors, but could possibly be within our repertoire of trying for a functional cure. But the one that I was going for is sort of this therapeutic, therapeutic vaccine idea that we improve the immune system to such a point to where the person is able to control their own virus once we actually stop therapy. PD-1 blockade might also be able to do that. and CRISPR, HIV DNA modification wouldn't, But if we were to target some other DNA, like the CCR5 gene or something like that, that might actually have uh, a functional HIV cure strategy. But if I were trying to just go in and cut out all of HIV DNA, that would be more of an eradication or sterilizing cure strategy. Which of these is an example of a kick and kill HIV cure strategy? Is it therapeutic vaccine? Is it the HDAC inhibitor therapy? Is it the CRISPR HIV DNA modification? Or is it the gene deletions of CCR5? Good job, so yeah, so HDAC inhibitor therapy would be the classic kick and kill, although with the romadepsin you know, we're still sort of trying to figure out that kill strategy. And the point here that I wanna make is that we're likely to see in the coming years combining of these. Maybe we use the HDAC inhibitor for the kick and we use the antibody for the kill and then we go ahead and try to manipulate the T cells to make them protected. Um, on the CCR5 side. So we're gonna see multiple of these sort of combination therapies just like we do with antiretroviral therapy um, for the cure strategies. So I wanted to end on two notes. The first note is how long will we have to wait? I think we're gonna have to wait a really long time. Um, Not that I'm just a pessimist, it's just that we still have a lot of science to do and that we still need to do a lot of cure studies And the caveat here is that these cure studies are going to require very altruistic individuals um, who are going to allow lots of science to be done with them, knowing that we're not going to have the silver bullet for cure now, today, tomorrow, anytime in the near future. But hopefully we're going to learn something. And I think this is sort of analogous to the early days when we were trying antiretroviral therapy, knowing that Honestly, people were going to die, but they gave us everything, blood, bone, brain, whatever we needed to make the therapies that now uh, save lives. But the cure uh, agenda is going to have some of these uh, therapies that are going to be um, maybe not so safe, Um, and we're going to have to do a good job at making sure that our patients are safe and otherwise healthy when they take antiretroviral therapy. Some of these studies are going to require stopping treatment, and it's... It's a different uh, discussion than what we have now in the clinic was, don't ever stop your therapy. Uh, If you're in a cure study, maybe we, if we can monitor you well enough that maybe um, we can do that safely. The other one is inducement. Uh, Money, but more importantly, probably hope. If we keep doing these cure studies and we don't come uh, around with a cure anytime soon, does that erode hope within the community? Does it erode our efforts in this cure strategy? And we just have to make sure that we keep both of these uh, open and honest discussions. The other thing that I want to bring up is that, remember, we still have syphilis, and we have a great cure for syphilis. So just curing HIV is unlikely to cure the whole problem of HIV, and that we have to be diligent on the other fronts in terms of prevention and therapy. So I'll stop there. I think we have questions for me.
0: I'll do your questions from the audience here. So the first question for you, Davey, is the Berlin versus the Boston patients. Did either or both groups have graft versus host disease? And if yes, was it prolonged?
1: So the Berlin patient, yes, that's a great question. So that, that is a great question. That's been discussed ad nauseum. But the Boston patients didn't have graft versus host disease. They also had different chemotherapy and radiation. So they're very different uh, groups. But the Berlin patient did have um, GRASP versus host disease. And I think there were two rather prolonged instances of that um, in
0: him. And the next question is just for clarification. Um, Some members of the audience are asking if you could just describe a little more the acronyms PD-1 and CRISPR-Cas, whether, where they are, are they part of the human body and where do you find them?
1: Sure, that's a great question. Um, so PD-1 uh, sounds very ominous. It actually stands for Program Death 1. Um, but just because it was named after a marker that was uh, associated with apoptosis, so they knew that if it was tagged, it causes apoptosis, and now we know more about it, and it's actually more associat- associated with when it's tagged, it exhausts the T cells. So that's the name, and it's associated with the interaction between a cell that's presenting antigen, like here's a cell that has HIV on it, now you, T-cell, go and find this antigen and go kill other cells that are infected, and that's that interaction between an antigen-presenting cell and a T-cell, that's how it's supposed to work. The CRISPR-Cas system is uh, actually taken from bacteria, so it's the way, part of the way and it's been manipulated that bacteria manipulate their own genes. They have gene editing enzymes, it's CRISPR-Cas, that recognize certain genes to cut them in or cut them out. And that's a basic bacteriologic process. And now we've uh, found that uh, pathway and manipulated that pathway t- for our own purposes and say, okay, instead of putting in plasmids or taking out plasmids, we're going to cut in or cut out HIV. So that's the current system for CRISPR-Cas. And we could spend a lot of time talking about it, but basically, it's a DNA recognition um, system that's able to cut in and out genes that we want to identify. Hope that makes sense.
0: So, would you say that the Berlin uh, versus Boston patients could be the delta? 32 versus the Delta Delta 32 and what exactly is the difference?
1: So I have no idea. So the the, the, the the answer to that question I think is is a very, very good one. And there are continuing to be other uh, bone marrow transplant studies to try to tease out pieces of this, but it could be the Delta 32, it could be the Delta Delta 32, it could be the chemotherapy, it could be the radiation, it could be the graft-versus-host disease. There are lots of different um, potential mechanisms, and maybe all of those, that is necessary to get the real cure that we're looking for. Um, However, you know, stem cell cure, Stem cell transplants are a lousy way to cure HIV in someone who can take therapy and live pretty well. So we have to be very mindful that um, our therapy works really well. So we have a really high bar if we're gonna come up with a cure strategy. But we can learn something in these people who are getting stem cell transplant. But to answer the real question is, I don't know what is the real reason that the Berlin patient, Timothy Brown, was cured of HIV and why we haven't been able to replicate it too well. There are studies that are ongoing, and I'm sure you'll see it both in the press and perhaps through patient recruitment. Thanks.